Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm David Frizzell and this is episode 71, a special episode about the female revolution in the boardroom. It's the first episode of a brand new year, and 2017 wasn't an easy one for many of you listening. The political turmoil around the globe cast a black cloud over those last 12 months. And there was another major story last year that was deeply troubling. What started as a trickle of allegations against movie mogul Harvey Weinstein has now become a flood. Today, the New York Times reported actors Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie say Weinstein sexually harassed them. Hillary Clinton said she was shocked and appalled by the revelations. And the New Yorker magazine says the accusations now include rape. When one of the most powerful men in Hollywood was revealed to be a serial sexual predator, it set off a chain reaction around the globe. The Me Too hashtag finally exposed the worst kept secret in the workplace, that powerful men often abuse that power. Women all over the world began to share their stories of being harassed and abused and assaulted and they started to name names. Prominent politicians, musicians, actors and businessmen were forced out of their positions because of those revelations. Of course, there had been rumours and even outright accusations about these men in the past, but last year, for the first time, the women were seriously being listened to. Their stories are no longer being ignored, and that's why, as horrible and painful as this process has been, 2017 was the year that changed everything for women in the workplace. Said the allegations were patently false against him. Uh, I knew otherwise. I knew what kind of guy he was. He said he would help me. He was wanted to help me. I thought, wow, he's going to be a mentor for me. And I said, you know, I will go up and meet with you at, in your office, uh, but you are not allowed to touch me. And he said, ah, ha, ha. He kind of laughed it off. And uh, he shook my hand, though, and he said, I, I won't. He invited me to a business meeting that we were supposed to talk about career stuff and we were supposed to meet in the lobby and when I got there he wasn't there. He called me and asked me to come to his room. I remember the lurch when I went to the desk and I said, uh, Mr. Weinstein, is he on the patio? And they said he's in his room and I was like, Ugh, kidding me. I've had an incredible opportunity over the last 71 episodes of the podcast to speak with some truly inspiring women. In the course of those conversations, the topic of women in the workplace often came up. I wanted to share some of those with you this week. I think they'll help to illustrate just how profoundly modern women are changing the economy and politics for the better. In episode 49, Fabian Datner told me bluntly, that women should rule the world. Fabian is a leadership activist, and in her own words, she's not messing around anymore. She's on a crusade to correct the gross misunderrepresentation of women in leadership roles. The statistics are appalling. Women fill between 9 and 17% of global leadership roles. Since the beginning of time, the game has been rigged in favour of men. And Fabian told me that if that doesn't change quickly, we're in a lot of trouble. Tell me, why exactly should men and women lead in equal measure? I'm not sure they should lead in equal measure would be my answer. It may well be time for quite a significant shift in the pendulum. And so it may well be time for women to have a significant influence on the way the planet 
is operating. So an example would be that uh, four quite significant pieces of research, two McKinsey reports, Zenger and Falkman, would be one of the world's respected capability and leadership consultancies, the Hay Group, who many of your listeners will be familiar with, have reached a, a very common conclusion. This is thousands and thousands of bits of data on the impact leaders have on outcomes and on teams, on businesses, and they reach four critical conclusions, common, although they may slightly different words. Number one, women have a greater predisposition to collaboration. Number two, women are by nature a bit more inclusive. Number three, they seem to have more of a legacy mindset. And number four, can be trusted more so with assets on behalf of the collective money and people. So as a mother of three sons, as someone who spent a lifetime working with leadership groups around the world, both men and women, we all know that the prevailing leadership model is much more well-suited to the way men predispose to work. So right now we need to address an imbalance, a significant imbalance, on behalf of the greater good. So I don't think this is about gender equity. I think it's about the sustainability of our species because I actually happen to be one of those people who, based on good scientific information, hold that we'll be lucky to see the next 200 years out with the way we're going. It's an incredibly sad story, isn't it? How I really like your argument that the reason to rethink the gender balance and leadership is so our, our planet sustains itself, so our planet survives. That's a pretty good argument you've got there, Fabian. And, and I like those points that you made. Research tells us that women simply are better at collaborating. They're more inclusive. They have a, a more attuned legacy mindset and they're better trusted with assets. It makes you wonder, though, doesn't it? Why is the gender imbalance still so stark? Well, you're, you're dealing with over 2,000 years of enculturation. And, you know, men are wonderful, brave, brilliant, clever. Handsome. Uh, well, definitely handsome. Truthfully, they, they are forgers of the rivers, climbers of the mountain. Yeah. Uh, they uh, start and finish wars. They have the capacity <laughs> to build bridges to take us somewhere. And it's not to say that women can't or won't do any of those things. It's just at the moment our world has reached the end of a, a pretty critical cycle and for better or for worse, we're confronted with both the magic of our brilliance and its cost. And every major theocracy in the world is male-dominated. This way we lead in our world is structured around the way men prefer to lead, structural hierarchy, Men are slightly more, you know, something like 70,000 different um, pieces of research on brain distinction has reached the conclusion that there's almost no difference between our brains. Right. Uh, men's brains are predisposed to be slightly more aggressive. Right. Women's brains are slightly predisposed to being more compassionate. Mm -hmm. Right now I'm thinking we're out of balance. So there's a lot of evidence about why we are where we are culturally, philosophically, Physically, we're smaller, we're not as strong, we're not as fast, we don't have sharp teeth, we don't have claws. Uh, so men can both physically uh, dominate and can dominate and control of assets. Uh, we live in hierarchical power structures. Women are collective more than they are I predisposed. So mm. men will talk about what I've done, what, yeah. I, what I've achieved, which is a great thing and I, I respect it. Women are more inclined to talk about what we can do, what we, we own, what we can achieve. And those, those two mindsets are at odds because in leadership we reward individual achievement over collective. 
someone's power and influence over a team's success. Not always, but far too often. So how does Australia do? How are we going at the the gender balance of power, say in the the private sector or at the government level, when you compare us to other developed nations? Well, I think the world has a a terrible sameness to it. And of course, under the influence of the likes of Donald Trump is going to go back at a furious speed on some of these issues. Now, I appreciate he's... Scary, isn't it? Well, you know, he's a disruptor, he's adversarial, he's doing what many, many powerful males will do in the takeover of a corporation. It's a sort of pretty brutal shake-up. I'm one of the people that actually predicted he would win. I think it comes at a time when we've lost faith in leadership. Swinburne did a really interesting, Swinburne Institute of Technology did an interesting piece of research a couple of years ago called Leadership for the Greater Good, and our trust in corporate leadership is sitting at around 26%. So the long and the short of it mm. is, um, you know, our, we're at a crossroads and I'm, I'm not going to play any games anymore. I don't think this is a light little trivial issue. Yeah. I think it's a really, really important issue. And I look at my kids and I think about their children. I think, what are we leaving them? We're leaving them a world in chaos. It's becoming frightened, smaller in thinking, and the planet's at risk. You know, I've just come back from Antarctica and I can't walk away from what I've learned. I've been with 76 scientists for two months I can't walk away from what I've heard. It's ridiculous what we're doing. It's just silly. The planet will recover, by the way. It's humans may not be here to see it. When you have that proximity to science and you you trust the scientific process and then you think about a stunt that our government pulled in Parliament just yesterday where they brought in a lump of coal and passed it around Parliament and said, it's coal, get used to it, there's nothing wrong with it, that must make you quiver. And that's what I mean by what will happen under Trump. You know, it's been interesting to watch ourselves. We Globally, it's been phenomenal media on the back of Homeward Bound. Something like 79 million people heard about it in January alone. And we watched the shift from Trump's inauguration before and after, and the media coverage was huge throughout 2016. Now, whenever an article is posted, say there's a Forbes article or equivalent, There'll be 100 comments and now 70 of them may be incredibly abusive and that simply wasn't there beforehand. Right. You know, you'd get one out, two out of 70. So I think what it's going to give people permission to do is be nasty to each other, be accusatory, confrontational, and that's going to frighten a lot of people. It's certainly not going to be something that works for most women and I think for a lot of men it's going to be incredibly uncomfortable. So it's a silly gimmick to pass around coal, a piece of coal and go, that's just silly. You know, it's just puerile. My head goes, okay, well, it's, I like stunts, you know, a mm. lifetime of doing some eccentric things in Australia. But the truth of it, it's just a stunt. That's all. It doesn't mean anything. Well, and it, it, what it does is highlight and brags about their naivety of the scientific process. Yes, pretty well, pretty <laughs> well. And frankly, if they could, we could produce coal and it could be safe and clean the first people to get behind it would be scientists. So it's not a belief in the scientific method, by the way, and I think that's an interesting comment. The scientific method is designed to get rid of the prospect, uh, the concept of belief. It's not an act of faith science. It's a process by which a proposition is made, it's tested, and then it's peer-reviewed. So when the world scientific community says we believe, we say this is a truth, then standing on current evidence, you can bank it as a truth. 
when it is debunked by, say, for instance, a climate denier, we're just voicing personal opinion. It's like I can say, I believe you're wearing a hat. That actually doesn't mean you're wearing a hat. It just means I think you are. Mm. doesn't make it a fact. No, you're right. I shouldn't have said believe. I, w- I meant I trust and understand the scientific Correct. process. Yes. Yep. You, you, you're right to pull me up. Hey, you mentioned in there, Fabian, your Homeward Bound project, and obviously I've, I've read a lot about that and it's super impressive. Can you tell us more about it, where it came from and what it's all about? Yeah, sure. So there are sort of three overlapping circles. You know, for 30 years I've been working globally and extensively in this part of the world on leadership development and about seven years ago increasingly concerned at the consistent and intransigent problem about the selection and promotion of women. And so we launched in Datna Grant a program for women in or thinking of taking up leadership roles called Compass. Uh, Compass is a transformational leadership program, not transactional. So it's not about how to lead, it's why bother leading. And for women, that is an insanely important conversation. It's about our collaboration and about the stories we tell ourselves about our leadership capability and because we live in an, in a world that doesn't celebrate our difference and commands demands that we follow the current leadership model a lot of the time a lot of women are operating out of preference so compass was launched to help have significant intelligent and transformational conversations about why bother leading so all the stuff around purpose and values sense of self the stories we tell ourselves remembering some 25% of a random group of women will report some level of sexual physical abuse, you know, real abuse. So creating a space where we can have trusted, safe conversations about how we see ourselves, our role in the world, our purpose and values, our story and our visibility. So we do a lot of coaching around women's visibility from a solid platform and we put women into a collaborative space where they are inclined to perform more effectively. Anyway, I was down in Tasmania running a program. This is in around about October 2015, and I was running it in a program where a number of scientists and conversation, Antarctic scientists, conversations about Antarctica are always joyful. Mm. Uh, But this conversation slid from joy and excitement to frustration and anger and to grief in a very short period of time with a number of the women uh, really dissolving into tears as they talked about their grief about what's happening to the planet, their frustration about not being listened to and being consistently passed over for by men, and so much so that they joked that you had to have a beard to be a successful leader in polar science. So uh, something must have happened in my head because I said, okay, let's regroup, go back into the program, focus on where we are and keep talking. And that night I quite literally dreamt homeward bound into reality. I It was a full-blown lucid dream. There I was on a ship with the women. We were filming it. It was called Homeward Bound and I knew what we were doing. And the next morning I rang Jess Melbourne Thomas, who was then half-time between Australian Antarctic Division, half-time with Institute of Marine and Antarctic Science, and told her the dream. And I said, do you think it's got legs? And Jess had a short while before done our women's program. And she's a beautiful young leader, very brilliant Rhodes Scholar, dreadlocks down to her bum, marine ecologist, and she went yes. And between Jess and I, over the space of the following four weeks, we redrafted a paper I wrote a dozen times 
as it got escalated up through the Australian Antarctic Division until the then CEO said, I think this program should go ahead. And that kind of gave us not the resources but the courage to pursue the idea. And the rest is history, as they say. We took 76 women with a science background to Antarctica in December 2016 and we're currently open for registrations for 2017-18 right now. And they were doctors, astronomers, physicists, engineers, marine ecologists, penguin specialists, polar specialists, vets, social scientists, engineers, and then people just starting their PhD journey. So we had the youngest was 24 and the oldest was 64. Even now, as we transition from 2017 to 2018, it's difficult for women to rise to prominent roles inside many corporations. So you can imagine how hard it would have been to do it in the 1980s. Jenny Purdy is CEO of Adani Australia Renewables, a major player in the burgeoning green energy sector. In episode 57, she joined me to talk about her journey to the C-suite. She started working in the mining sector as an engineer in the late 80s. 80s. At one point in our conversation, I asked her if she had any female mentors early in her career. I can't think of many mentors and women mentors that I had early in my career. And I think that's because as a young graduate, you just, I certainly didn't realise why things might be more difficult for me than they were for the men that I was working with. And I guess I I had always been successful at, at school, at university, and I couldn't see any reason why my gender was going to present any barriers to me at all. So so I don't think I looked for mentoring in those those really early years. I certainly had lots of lots of women who were friends of mine, and there were more senior women, but I guess I didn't really sense a need because I, I didn't see what perhaps were some of the barriers. But, you know, it, it was a very different industry then. And as I was as I was saying to you earlier, Dave, I mean, it was very much this is the industry, how it is. And if you don't like it, then we're not going to change for you. And I remember the the first role I was in, you know, walking down to the maintenance supervisor's office and opening the door and, and the offices were, it, there was not a, there was not an inch of, of vacant wall space, pinups from floor to ceiling, you know, and I, yeah, I and I just, calendars yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just knew that, that it was not appropriate to question that. So there's all these messages everywhere that you don't belong here, but I probably wasn't aware of the impact that was having on me in terms of my confidence in the industry. So, you know, I, I did fine in those roles. I, I wasn't a, an out, um, out and out, you know, huge success uh, story, but I never looked at the environment and the way that things were around me and said, you know, this is a factor. I just said, well, I've got to work harder or I've, you know, <laughs> got to do better sort of was my approach so um, when things didn't go my way. You walk into a superintendent's office, see it covered head to floor to ceiling in nudie posters, and your impression was, it's not my role to question this. That's 1987, Jenny Purdy. What does 2017 Jenny Purdy think of that image? And with that question, how much has the industry changed? The industry has changed completely in its, in its approach, and it needed to, I think, in that certainly when I was a GM at, at Point Henry, and in my roles as middle managers in other, you know, even in 1997, we'd got past the point of it's okay to have this in your locker and we got to the point of if I see this on site, you've got a problem and the person who brought it had the problem, not the person who complained about it because we just got to the point where we, we realised that, that we needed to make the, 
workplace uh, welcoming for everybody and, and everybody needed to needed to feel comfortable there and, and any overt signs that might trigger people feeling that they didn't belong just didn't they were the ones we needed to get rid of so it it came very much down I think in those sort of 10 15 years there was a real change between people seeing it as a problem for the person who didn't like it and perhaps if you don't like it you don't belong so just find somewhere else to work to actually know we want to have this as a safe place for everybody and therefore we need to we need to deal with some of these things. So that change came quickly from 87 to about 97, as you describe it, where by 97, the problem was with the person who had the poster, not with the person who was upset about the poster. So then what has progressed? So that was a big progression in those 10 or so years. And what about the 20 years since 97? How has the industry progressed since then? Is it easier, harder, indifferent for women? Has it got to the point where a, f- a female's career in the mining sector, for example, will have exactly the same trajectory as a male of equivalent talent in the same industry? I don't think we're, we're there yet. I do think very many companies are trying very hard. I think that in most businesses that I've been part of or, or seen, we're past debating the business case for diversity. I know when I, when I was early in my career and people would talk about getting more women in the workforce there was never a suggestion that it was part of the business case. It was always a view that it was kind of a nice thing to do and we should do it and it was the right thing to do to give these people a chance. And I remember in 2000... Give them a, go. Give them a turn. Well, give them a go because they need some help and, you know, and, and if, we can, um, if we can help them enough, they might act more like men and then that'd be better for everybody, you know. And I think, I think we're well and truly past that to the point... In 2003, I remember I was working with Alcoa and I was part of the Alcoa Global Women's Network. And in that context, I first saw some of the research from Catalyst that talked about businesses that had diverse leadership teams and diverse boards performing better. And I had never seen that before. And it was a huge thing for me to realise that what I intrinsically believed was the right thing to do also was going to be better for the business. So you weren't actually competing the right thing versus the business. You were actually saying, if we can get these things what one will cause the other. And I'd never seen that before. And in fact, I was in a in a session recently where people were presenting the business case for diversity. And I remember saying to people, why are we still talking about this? this that this was is, decided this, years this ago. This is over. This, this, this is 15 years ago that we had this debate. It's been, you know, so, so I think that's been a big, a huge change. Yeah. And the change, the issues now, I think, are more around what are the best ways to enable women to participate in all roles in industry fully and not any more about whether we want them to but more how do we make that happen and I think we've got we get tied up in these debates about targets and affirmative programs and all of those things and I think those are all important to an extent I actually think the biggest thing for me anyway is once we recognize we want diversity and once we enable enough diverse talent that people don't feel that they're on their own anymore, I think it actually then becomes inclusion. And then it comes basically back to good leadership. And how do you lead your team in a way that engages everybody, makes it safe for everybody to be themselves in the workplace, to contribute their ideas and to to be their best? And I think when we can do that, it is so liberating and it is so beneficial to productivity. I had it explained to me recently in terms of the neurology of it and in terms of when people are are frightened and feel unsafe, there's the 
there's the amygdala that they're working from, and and so they they can't be creative. But if you can you can get them out of that situation of fear, they can then use their their frontal cortex, and and therefore they can be be creative. And and certainly I know in my case that when I'm in an environment where I'm not always worried about whether I'll say the wrong thing, whether someone will get abusive or angry at me for making a comment that they don't like, to where I know that as long as I'm speaking in a constructive way and making suggestions, people will welcome those and and you know react to them positively. Suddenly that whole that the stress of the workplace is reduced and my ability to be creative and perform my best is is increased. So I think more and more it becomes around how do we create those environments in our teams? How do all of us as leaders do that for our teams? It's harder because we all want people who agree with us. We all don't want the person coming with an idea from left field when we've almost got to a got to a resolution with the team. But how do we make that safe for people? How do we run a, you know, a 15-minute stand-up meeting and yet engage the person who wants to talk about a topic that the rest of the team is is not wanting to talk about? But we want that person to be engaged and we need to include them in the discussion. So that's the challenge for all of us as leaders. And then I think this whole diversity and inclusion thing becomes a value proposition for everybody in the team, not just the women. We want them to be engaged, of course, and we want their ideas, even how, uh, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us. A few episodes ago, I had Fabian Datner. I think it was episode 49. Fabian is a, a leadership activist, she describes herself. And she was very clear about why women should rule the world. Women are, there are, there are four things that we know women are better at than men. Women are predisposed to collaboration. They are by nature more inclusive. They are more attuned to a legacy mindset, so what they're leaving behind, and they can be better trusted with public and common assets, says Fabian about the research. So I would hope that our conversation has progressed somewhat since 1997 and we have a more inclusive society, not just a business community, because we want the best results. When you work with groups like this, the Women in Mining and Resources in Queensland, do you look at these these young female professionals and think, God, you've got it easy compared to what I had to go through? Actually, no, I've never thought that. I've never thought that because, you know, everybody everybody's life has a story. Everybody has their own challenges. And I, no, I've, I've honestly never thought that. <laughs> but now that you've said it, yeah, they have, they have. <laughs> no, look, I, I think there's different challenges. Certainly for for women who are wanting to get into the sector these days, there's, there's a huge amount of encouragement, but that was there 20 years ago at least anyway. Um, you know, the forward-thinking businesses wanted to get more women there. I think some of the programs that support that are certainly stronger, but also there's a weight of expectation there. So, no, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's harder or easier, and I don't. I try not to think about whether it's harder or easier for men either because I know that in the current context there's at times there's a backlash and, and males in the industry feel that it may be harder for them to get roles because there is such an emphasis on diverse talent. And if they're, if they're a white, you know, Caucasian male from an Australian background, it may be hard for them to get a role. So I, I, I don't think about it that way. I just, I, I focus more, I guess, on uh, we want everyone to, to bring their whole self to work, to contribute, to be engaged. And we've got to make sure that in our quest to encourage diversity, we don't disengage anybody in our teams. I think the most important reason we need more female business leaders isn't a moral one. Of course, it's unjust for women to be frozen out of prominent roles, but just as Jenny Purdy pointed out, the more women leaders a company has, the more successful they tend to be. 
and I don't think that's a fluke, women tend to have a different style of leadership than men. When those voices are listened to, it adds to a dynamic, diverse organisation. Positive psychology, positive leadership, who wouldn't want a piece of that? In episode 37, Michelle McQuaid treated us to a masterclass, a brilliant guide to understanding and pursuing a life defined by the positive. Michelle defines in an incredibly real and accessible way positive psychology and the science that sits behind it. Michelle is a best-selling author who helps to train companies and individuals about a different kind of leadership. Absolutely. And I think perhaps, you know, it was that self-actualization step. I mean, you know, I loved my job, but it probably didn't provide a lot of meaning and purpose for me at that stage. And to be honest, you know, keeping up with the life that I created was hard work, <laughs> you know, keeping up the energy to be working in that role, had yeah. me travelling a lot around the world. So I was often jet lagged and young family, you know, you know what that's like, running around after kids all weekend. You know, there was a lot going on in life. Mm. And I guess it just wasn't satisfying in the sense that I felt like the work I was doing was great. I worked with nice people, but at the end of the day, I was making the partners of that firm richer. And (laughs) I don't know that I was contributing a whole lot more into the world. And actually, as I started doing my master's in positive psychology, when I went on to do that studies, one of the things I realised was actually, for me, the point of getting out of bed each day was the chance to make a positive difference for somebody else. And I don't think I'm that different in that aspect. In fact, we see in research that the number one predictor of meaningfulness in our work is that what we do makes a positive difference for somebody. And so initially, I couldn't afford to quit my job. I was the breadwinner at that time in our family. But I was able to refocus my job. I had a little team of about five direct reports to me at that stage. And so I made my job the focus of it about going to work each day and trying to find ways to bring out the best in these people. And that small shift made a massive difference for me in terms of starting to be more engaged and finding more of the energy uh, for my job once again. That's a great story. And you answered what was going to be my next question, how you made that transition. And you obviously started some postgraduate study in positive psychology, and that was the path you took. Absolutely. So I went to uh, my boss in New York and I said, I want to go and do my master's in positive psychology, which is a strange enough thing to ask in an accounting Mm. firm, let's be honest. Um, (laughs) And uh, bless him, you know, he was quite interested in human behavior. So he's like, well, okay, where are you going to do it? And I said, well, there's only two places in the world at that stage you could do it. I said, I want to do it at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, because the field's founder, Professor Martin Seligman, is based there. Now, I have a good government school, Tasmanian education, so my boss had a bit of a laugh that I was going to apply to this Ivy League university. (laughs) And he said to me at the time, well, if you can get in, then come and talk to me and we'll figure it out. So I was like, all right, you know, what what do I stand to lose, really? I got in and I got a spot. I applied and got a spot. And uh, at that stage, we'd actually moved back to Australia. And the challenge with this was going to be that I had to be in Philadelphia every three weeks for three days for class, and I'm living in Melbourne. So that's about a 21-hour, one-way plane ride. (laughs) To go to class. Exactly, to go to class. So I was fortunate. I'd come back. I was still working with PricewaterhouseCoopers here in Australia, and I went to my boss here in Australia, and I went back to my old boss in New York, and I said, look, 
for a year, I need to be in Philadelphia every three weeks for three days. Would you mind splitting my job between Melbourne and Philadelphia and uh, Philadelphia slash New York? Because Philly's only, you know, an hour by train from New York. And I'll come up to New York each time I'm there. I'll do a few days work for the US firm and then I'll fly home. And uh, by the way, would you mind paying all the airfares? <laughs> because it's going to cost me quite a lot of money to fly back and <laughs> That's forth. Bold. Yeah, well, so we made a business case for it, right? We looked at why it was good for me, why it was good for them, <laughs> why it might be good for the firm, and bless them, they said, okay, we're game, you know, go for it. And so that's what we did for a year. It was an amazing opportunity. And, you know, I come home from class and start applying all the ideas in my little team straight away and in my own life and my family. I was lucky I was studying the right thing, human flourishing, because if I was studying accounting, I think I would have been fried. (laughs) Um, But it worked and it was an amazing opportunity. And PwC here in Australia got really interested in these ideas and said, well, here are six and a half thousand employees, go and see if any of it works. And so for the next couple of years, they let me transition my role out of a branding and marketing background, which was my technical area of expertise, and begin playing in this space to see what would happen. So it was an amazing opportunity. I love the term human flourishing. It's so descriptive and and really helps you understand what it's all about in those two words. You must be quite the marketer to get all of that across the line. You've done very well there. And I guess one of the features of studying that human flourishing is that evidence is all around you and opportunities to implement the things that you've learned are all around you. If you study something else, like you said, economics, for example, or accounting, You've got to go out of your way to find opportunities to implement that. But this type of thing that you were studying, family, friends, work, everywhere you went, there were opportunities to observe and to practice. Oh, yeah. Nobody was safe. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we do, uh, we use it with my kids. They'll be in therapy for the rest of their lives because their mothers <laughs> because e- experimented on them. That's right. <laughs> I use it in my work all the time. I use it, you know, in relationships and family. And mostly for me, I think if you think about that Maslow triangle, you know, th- this work has really been pivotal for me and I think for many others in taking that journey of self-actualization and being able to have the confidence to feel like you've got the knowledge and the tools and support to navigate the natural highs and lows in life that we all experience and really learn from what life has to offer. Positive leadership is just one aspect of the revolution that is about to sweep through the boardroom. Increasingly, empowered women are demanding that abusive bosses be held accountable, and many of those same women have decided to become bosses instead. Huge numbers of women will be running for political office in the United States in 2018, a direct response to the presidency of Donald Trump. This revolution is long overdue, and one of the big reasons I think we can be optimistic about 2018. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of the Team Guru podcast. Remember to rank and comment this episode on Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud, and we'll continue the conversation on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash teams.guru. My name's David Frizzell. Thanks for listening. I look forward to your company next time.